Hello, I'm your host, Kyrie Douglas, and welcome to Catalyzing Computing, the official podcast of the Computing Community Consortium. The Computing Community Consortium, or CCC for short, is a programmatic committee of the Computing Research Association. The mission of the CCC is to catalyze the computing research community and enable the pursuit of innovative, high-impact research. In this episode, I interview Dr. Gregory D. Hager, the Mandel Belmore Professor of Computer Science at Johns Hopkins University. Hager is known for his research on collaborative and vision-based robotics, time series analysis of image data, and medical applications of image analysis and robotics. He is the founding director of the Johns Hopkins Malone Center for Engineering and Healthcare, an interdisciplinary research center aimed at developing innovative healthcare technologies and systems. He also served as chair of the Computing Community Consortium from 2014 to 2016. In this episode, we discuss tactile perception, the founding of the Malone Center, and data privacy. Enjoy! You're listening to Catalyze Computing, here today with Gregory D. Hager, the Mandel Belmore Professor of Computer Science at Johns Hopkins University, and the founding director of the Johns Hopkins Malone Center for Engineering and Healthcare, an interdisciplinary research center aimed at developing innovative healthcare technologies and systems. So, Greg, thanks for being here today, virtually via Zoom. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me here today, Gary. So let's start with your background. Uh, where did you grow up and how did you first get involved with uh, computer science? Where did I grow up? So I grew up on a small farm in Northeast Iowa, uh, really pretty far from any technology like we think about it today. Um, but I first became involved with computers when I was 10 years old, so 1971. Uh, when our high school had a teletype installed, which uh, connected via modem to the local college, Luther College, which is ultimately also the college that I went to and got my computer science degree. They had a very forward-thinking program that they had gotten funded through the state of Iowa to place computer terminals in all of the local high schools in the area. And they had connected it up to an HP 2000 system, which ran a version of BASIC. Uh, And they were using the computer as a learning tool for students. So as, I guess, what, a fourth grader, I got to go up and it would print out, you know, 13 plus 15. And I would have to type in uh, 28 and it would say right or wrong. And if I got it right, it would go on and do, you know, a harder question. If I got it wrong, it would go on and do an easier question and just was spewing out reams of paper as I was doing this. Um, But I was just fascinated by the fact that there was this computer and you could type things in, it would type things back to you. And then about, I guess I was in eighth grade. So four years later, uh, the same computer terminal showed up, but it was in my algebra class in middle school. Uh, And the teacher there actually knew just a little bit about programming. And so he explained to me that you could actually type your own programs to the computer and get it to do something. Uh, And so I basically just started to try to figure out the basic programming language. I didn't have any books or manuals, so I would just kind of try commands and some of them worked and some of them didn't work. And I, I found some other programs and I could look at them and see what the commands were. 
So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I could get the computer to do my homework for me. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of progressed from there. So by the time I was about uh, 15 or 16, I remember I was doing something with my dad out in the farm uh, and we got to talking about the future. And he said, yeah, it's pretty clear to me you're never going to be a farmer. You seem to like those computer things a lot. So you should probably go and do that instead. So that's how I became a computer scientist. Well. Wow. Uh, so what inspired your interest in robotics? Well, so I went to, so my undergrad degree was at a, you know, a local, a regional four-year college, Luther College. I got a computer science degree. And uh, as I was you know, a junior, senior in college, I got interested in artificial intelligence. And I thought it was just fascinating to think that you could actually build an intelligent machine. And I checked a bunch of books out of the library and was reading up on you know, the current work of the day and built a, a Lisp interpreter and uh, did some theorem-proving work for my senior thesis in college. So I went to uh, grad school thinking what I wanted to do was to do more AI, and particularly for me, AI was theorem-proving and heuristics and the, the sort of symbolic reasoning that was really fashionable, particularly in the, the mid to late 80s. Uh, but as I was in my first introductory meeting in grad school, uh, there were presentations by the faculty. And one of the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania, where I got my degree, was Ruchin Abaichi, who um, uh, is just an incredibly inspirational woman, both in, in terms of her life history as well as her, her research accomplishments. Uh, and she was uh, building a robotics lab at the University of Pennsylvania at the time. And she got up and talked about you know, the cool things that they were going to do with robots. They were going to be able to feel things and they were going to be able to see things and you know, move around in the world and manipulate things. And I thought that sounded interesting. And so when they had us stand up to list our research interests, I said, well, I'm interested in programming languages and artificial intelligence and theorem proving. And then pretty much on the fly, I riffed in and robotics. Uh, and uh, that was kind of the beginning of it. She um, picked up on that and was interested. And I chatted with her and uh, joined her lab pretty much on day one, uh, just as kind of a, a cohort of people to hang out with. Uh, and we just started doing uh, some work actually in tactile perception at the time. So my first, very first paper that I wrote in 1984 was in fact a paper on, on tactile perception for robots. I didn't really completely switch to robotics for a while. I still continued doing some work in other areas of AI, but uh, kind of slowly but surely, I, I transitioned over and became more and more enmeshed in perception-based robotics as the thing I was interested in. Okay. Um, could you say a little bit more about tactile uh, perception? What is that? Uh, the feeling of touch. Uh, there's actually a pretty interesting YouTube video, if you ever care to look it up, where they have somebody try to light a match and then they anesthetize their fingertips and then have them try to light a match. And it's uh, really kind of surprising how bad you are at doing some very <laughs> simple rote manipulation tasks, like lighting a match when you can't feel your fingertips. You break the matches. You you can't really tell if you're touching the, the scratch pad. Um, so that's that's tactile perception, the ability of your fingertips to feel pressure and to feel the shape of the objects uh, around them. So in the early days, the, and actually still today, 
really the challenge is the remarkable sensor capability we have versus what we're able to build uh, from a, an artificial perspective. It's just very, very, very challenging to build a, a high precision, or I should say high resolution, really, uh, uh, reliable, robust tactile sensing capability. So in those days, we had just a really coarse um, a finger that was wrapped in a sort of uh, a resistive foam that you could use to get a rough pressure sensor. And I basically did some work on, on modeling uh, how that sensor worked and, and the sorts of uh, signals that we could get out of it. Um, I've actually always had a little thread of tactile perception through my career. Uh, so in fact, uh, about 10 years ago, I had another NSF grant where we got to take the most recent at that time, most recent version of tactile sensors, and try to see if we could actually use ideas from computer vision for tactile sensing. Because the idea of tactile sensing really is, you know, you, you grab something, you get a, a fingertip feeling. But a lot of what happens is you actually move your fingers. It's what we called at the time active perception, way back when I was in Vision of Baichi's lab. The fact that you don't just passively uh, get information from the world, but you have to actively explore and you actually adapt your exploration to what you're trying to do and uh, the, the information that you're getting. Um, so the idea of this project uh, was, well, if we actually think about moving the sensor over the surface of something, it's a little bit like building a panorama. Uh, you know, So in an iPhone, you can build a panorama, right? You take a bunch of images, you stitch them together, you get this much bigger image. And so the idea was to say, well, we can get around the sort of locality and low resolution of a tactile sensor by rubbing your finger over the surface and essentially stitching it together. So now you get this much bigger kind of picture or force profile of the object. And now suddenly you've got something that's much like an image and you can take a lot of the ideas in computer vision and you can apply them to say, recognize objects that you're feeling with the fingertip. And so we actually were able to, to essentially take a finger and you could rub it over things and you could recognize letters and other primitive shapes just by doing this sort of image stitching together uh, and then using that image to, to recognize things. And I, I liken it to, you know, if you're reaching your pocket and you're like pulling out the keys, you kind of rub your hands over things and you feel the right sort of edges and the right sort of features and say, aha, those have to be the keys. Even though you haven't seen the whole key, you've seen just enough of it that you can recognize it from all the other stuff in your pocket. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, have you used those capabilities on any um, healthcare settings? No, we haven't. We, we've done a little bit of work in palpation. Uh, so like taking an organ and trying to squeeze it and decide, for example, if it has a tumor in it or not. Um, and so work, actually, this is work really led by Allison Okamura, who's now at Stanford, but was formerly a colleague at Hopkins. Uh, where we would basically kind of press on a surface and feel the force and then move it and press again. And it's kind of the same mosaicing idea, right? You kind of do this and eventually you start to see, aha, there's an area where it, it seems like it's a little bit harder than the rest. And that's, uh, you know, possibly a, a tumor that you want to locate. So I think that's the closest we've, we've come to using it. Um, but now that I'm thinking about it, we should probably go back and do more. <laughs> hmm. Um, so this might come up a little bit later again, but I wanted to ask, so you're the, you're founding director of the, the Malone Center for Engineering and Healthcare. 
Um, so what inspired your interest in healthcare and what is the Malone Center? Um, so uh, my interest in healthcare really was inspired when I came to Hopkins. Um, from you know when I finished my PhD until joining Hopkins, I had really done no work in medicine per se. Uh, I was doing work in real-time computer vision, robotics, hand-eye manipulation, navigation, pretty much bread and butter perception-based robotics work. Uh, but my colleague uh, and friend Russ Taylor received an NSF Engineering Research Center grant in 1998. And the center was focused on developing systems for computer integrated surgery. That is to say, bringing computers into the uh, area of interventional medicine and using them to support clinicians in the performance of procedures. So as part of that center, they were hiring some new faculty uh, and he reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested. Uh, and it just happened to work out. It was a good time for me to, to make a move anyway. So I moved to Hopkins and uh, pretty much uh, was thrown into the pool at that point. I, you know, I joined the center. The center itself was just getting spun up. Uh, and you know, Russ is uh, you know, one of these people who's just totally committed to the path he's on and you know, just is kind of bringing people in his wake. And so I was one of the people that was uh, in his wake and kind of got pulled into to doing work in that area. So one of the first things I realized is a lot of the work I had done in vision-based control for robots could actually be pivoted to thinking about how can we assist a surgeon passively to perform a high-precision procedure using visual guidance as part of the support for that surgeon. So specifically, one of the goals of that center early on was to do surgery of the retina of the eye. So you recall the retina is a, a membrane at the back of your eye. It's light sensitive. It consists of rods and cones. Uh, and it's, um, it's actually supported by uh, a structure called the choroid, which is the most highly vascularized uh, area of your body. Uh, so, you know, basically tons of blood vessels running back there to support all the neural functions that are taking place to sense light and transmit it into your brain. One of the challenges that surgeons face when they want to do surgery in that area of the eye is the scale of the structures involved. So the blood vessels, for example, in the back of the eye are uh, measured in microns or around 80 microns, which is about the size of a human hair. Uh, membranes in that area are around 10 microns. Uh, and it's pretty common for a surgeon to want to be able to manipulate those structures. So our idea was to say, well, could we uh, put the tool that they're using uh, in a robot and let them guide a robot to perform the procedure uh, instead of uh, them trying to do it freehand themselves? And nor do we want to try to automate it. You know, the idea that you're going to automate that type of surgery with a robot is, is still, I think, pretty far-fetched. Uh, and so uh, what I ended up doing is leading an effort where we developed assistance tools that let surgeons do these types of procedures uh, at the back of the eye. Um, and it really was, as I said, vision-based control work I'd done before, just kind of suitably modified. So if you see a blood vessel, visually, you can track a blood vessel. Once you can track a blood vessel, you can set up uh, the robot so that it preferentially 
will move toward that blood vessel if you apply a force to it. So the robot on its own stands still, but if I apply a force to the robot, it's gonna move in opposition to that force. But now what I do is I shape that motion so it wants to kind of move toward the structure that I've identified. So we really are kind of turning the, the tool that the surgeon's using kind of through the robot into a guided missile. You just say, okay, here's the place that I wanna go. The surgeon is in full control. They can stop, they can start, they can, they can actually push it uh, in another direction if they want to. We don't disallow that. But left on its, to its own devices, you apply a force to the robot, it goes where it's, it's currently aimed. And we showed that by doing that, we could do things like put a tiny cannula in the center of one of those blood vessels. And in fact, we can make surgeons accurate down to about, if I remember right, five to 10 microns. Um, which is about 10 times more accurate than most uh, good retinal surgeons are, are currently able to operate. So that was kind of my on-ramp. And then from there, we started to look at other ways that we could use computer vision and robotics to, to support interventional medicine and in particular surgery. Wow. That is impressive. Um, so I, I saw that one of the things the Malone Center does or is affiliated with the Hopkins Radiology AI Lab. Um, and you have a project called DeepCat, which detects breast cancer. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a bit about that project and, and how that works? Sure. Well, let me say first what the Malone Center is, uh, and then I can talk a little bit about why uh, um, DeepCat was something of interest. So uh, yeah, I spent probably... 15 years uh, at Johns Hopkins doing work in medicine, uh, primarily driven by the, the work that we we're doing in interventional medicine and surgery. But one of the things that was absolutely clear to me is that while we were developing amazing technology for medicine, uh, a lot of that technology is only as effective as our ability to know when and how to use it. And knowing when and how to use something goes much more back to the process of capturing information about a patient, uh, establishing a diagnosis for that patient, uh, determining which uh, possible treatment path might be the, the best possible treatment path for that patient, and then applying that, that treatment path effectively and, and assessing it. So really, instead of thinking about kind of the point of, of intervention, what you want to think of is the whole healthcare pathway uh, as a system and then understand how do we make that system as optimal as possible at every point along the way. Uh, so the Malone Center really was established with the idea in mind that we want to take a, a systems approach to healthcare, where, again, by a systems approach, what I really mean is let's think about the end result that we want to produce. Let's think about all the pieces that go into that end result, and then let's establish innovations that we can uh, introduce into that pathway such that they have the, the highest possible impact. Now, highest possible impact might not be uh, saying that I want to make uh, this surgeon's hands in retinal surgery more precise. Uh, it could be the highest impact is deciding whether somebody wants to have or should have retinal surgery or not. So DeepCat was, was one of those ideas where we were looking specifically at uh, breast cancer detection. Uh, as you know, you know, mammography is an established standard. Uh, millions of women uh, get mammograms every year. Those mammograms are assessed by a radiologist. 
if there are suspicious findings, they're called back. They often get a follow-up exam. Uh, sometimes it's negative. Uh, if it's not, then obviously they go further into diagnosis and treatment. But this is a needle in a haystack problem. Almost, you know, the the predominant fraction of those scans are absolutely normal. There are no findings to be to be had. But every single one of those scans still has to be looked at uh, by a radiologist. And we know how well radiologists perform as well. You know, we know their sensitivity and specificity. We know how often they they miss real cancers. We know how often they flag something that's not cancer. Uh, and it's it's really quite a high standard. It's actually incredible how well radiologists perform. But nonetheless, 95 plus percent of the time, they're just looking at a normal scan and saying the scan is normal. So the deep cat was to say, rather than trying to build uh, an AI system that can try to detect cancer, can we build an AI system that can detect the non-presence of cancer and do it with essentially 100% reliability? Because the value of that is we can disregard or discard or move aside, if you will, take out of the queue normal scans, scans where there really is nothing there. And we don't really care if our precision is uh, relatively low. That is to say, we don't care if we pass, say, 50% of the scans through in order to make sure that we miss nothing. Because if we're only passing 50% of the scans through, we have the workload for the radio radiologist, which means that we're now applying people to more meaningful work and using the machine to filter out uh, work that really provides no inherent value. Uh, among other things, what that means you could do if for nothing else, you could now have two radiologists independently read each of those scans. And there's uh, very strong evidence that if you have two reads instead of one, your ability to reliably detect cancer in fact, goes up even higher than if you have one uh, radiologist. So the, the idea of DCAT really builds on this Malone Center picture, which said, you know, if I were just trying to do a research uh, project and you know, publish a paper, I probably want to do cancer detection because it's simple, easy to understand thing. You, know, you give me an image, you say, here's cancer, and that's cool. Um, but if you actually look at how you make healthcare more efficient and effective, it's probably taking away a lot of the work that people are currently doing that's by rote work. And quite honestly, that's what computers have done all along, right? You know, the reason we invented spreadsheets is because that way people don't have to sit there and keep plucking in numbers and you know, pulling a lever to get a total out of uh, an adding machine. Or you know, the reason we invented word processing is because now people don't have to have you know, special skill just to type something in a nice typeface and, and make it formatted correctly. And, and that's really you know, what we should be doing in healthcare is looking for the low-hanging fruit where we can make people better, we can offload their work, and, and we can make it more efficient. That's not the only thing the Malone Center does, but it, it's a good project that just illustrates the sort of thinking that we're trying to engender in that center. Hmm. Okay. Um, are there any other Malone Center projects that you specifically want to talk about? Um, well, I think one of the things that I, I want to highlight about the Malone Center is uh, the act, the response that we had to COVID. Mm. Um, when the COVID pandemic started and it was very clear that we were uh, really going to be shutting down and that the healthcare system was uh in danger of becoming overloaded. Uh, I 
sent out an email to the Malone Center and we put together a series of meetings where we talked with healthcare professionals, brainstormed what the key issues were likely to be in terms of dealing with the expected load of patients that would be coming into the ICU, uh, and then started to look for ways that we could build uh, interventions or tools that would uh, support the clinicians and, and in some sense, either lessen their workload or increase their safety. So we developed uh, everything from uh, systems for mobile testing, uh, which really amounted to how do you protect healthcare workers while they're administering tests. We developed uh, a really innovative hood for intubation that allowed a patient to be intubated without um, releasing uh, COVID into the surrounding environment. Uh, we started to develop uh, analytics around the uh, detection and diagnosis of COVID. Uh, we developed uh, Actually, one of the more interesting ones, which got a lot of press, is, um, again, my colleague Russ Taylor, who I mentioned earlier, developed a system that allowed uh, managing uh, vents without having to go into the patient room. So in this particular case, one of the, the challenges is you've got a, a patient in essentially an isolated room, but all of the equipment in those rooms is designed to be operated manually. So in order to do anything, to adjust an IV pump, to adjust a ventilator, whatever, somebody has to don full PPE, uh, protective equipment, uh, go in, do whatever it is they need to do, come out, disrobe uh, from that PPE, and then uh, often the PPE is to be discarded at that point because it's potentially contaminated. And there's a whole process of how you don and off PPE in order to make sure that you don't... Um, you know, infect yourself or anyone around you. Uh, and so the idea was to say, well, hey, why don't we just put a little robot on all of the devices in the patient ward uh, and then just control them through an iPad. Uh, and so, for example, for a, a ventilator, which has a touchpad, uh, they built a little uh, robot that you could just mount on the touchpad. You had a camera looking at the touchpad. Uh, and then on your iPad, you could basically just say, I want to press this button and the robot would go over and press that button for you. And now suddenly you could you know, do remote operation without ever having to go into a patient ward. So in the end, there were um, well over a dozen COVID-related projects uh, that the Malone Center spun up. And I, I want to highlight that not just because, you know, there are a lot of projects and, you know, all these projects, you know, had uh, a lot of potential for impact in patient care, but also the process of actually having engineers and clinicians speaking with each other and developing these ideas. So it wasn't a, um, I have an idea and I'm going to implement it or a throw it over the fence sort of approach, but each of these projects and all the Mullen Center projects are integrally uh, clinician engineering teams working together to uh, develop, uh, you know, whatever the, the end goal is. So, I mean, I guess obviously Hopkins is a well-known research institution, well-known for its medical school. Um, but as you were just discussing, I guess, what's your process for enabling these collaborations between engineers and computer scientists and then medical professionals? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And people ask me that all the time. Um, I guess, you know, I grew up in an environment where 
I didn't, I wasn't trained to think inside a box. Uh, earlier on, I talked about my experience in graduate school and uh, working in Rujana Baichi's lab. And Rujana was someone who knew no bounds. Uh, you know, we did computer vision, we did haptics, we did robotics. She was one of the early pioneers in using computing to do automated analysis of medical images. Uh, she talked with cognitive scientists about how the perception system works. So I think from my earliest training, I always had uh, a very um, holistic or a, a connect the dot sort of uh, perspective on science. Uh, and I think that's really what has shaped much of my career in a lot of different ways, but certainly shaped my perspective and how to develop the Malone Center, which is, you know, rather than say, I have this particular technology interest and my goal is to understand if there's a way I can take my particular hammer and find just the right kind of nail that I can apply it to, really what you want to do is you want to get uh, a lot of people in the room, people who are reasonably like-minded, meaning they are also open to new ideas and, and new directions. They're able to, to learn different languages, if you will, different ways of thinking and talking about things, uh, and then allow them to, to basically iterate until they start to achieve uh, consensus and, and excitement around different types of projects that they could do. Uh, and pretty much everything that I've done personally in my research career has been developed that way. It's a it's a long-term process of developing ideas and relationships that, that let you think outside the technology box and outside the clinical box in the case of medicine. And that's really what I tried to do with the Malone Center as well. Uh, so for example, um, we have an annual retreat where we bring together the faculty, which is about evenly split between engineering and clinical medicine. Uh, to essentially brainstorm about strategic directions that we should take and, and how we could enable those directions. Um, I set up a seed grant program where the uh, one of the key gating factors is it has to be a multidisciplinary team split between computer science or engineering more generally and uh, medicine. Um, and all of these are, are really kind of team building and consensus building. Um, mechanisms that then allow those teams to go off and do uh, other work. And yes, one of the, the best things in the world has been when I've gotten an email back from a colleague who said, you know, because of the Malone Center and the, the environment you set up, I established this collaboration with this group. And in fact, now we've just gotten our first R01 from NIH, or we've gotten, you know, NSF funding to do the work that we originally funded under a seed grant. Uh, and, you know, it's clear that just that process of, of kind of creating those connections just has incredible uh, power to it. Uh, and, you know, a lot of academics, I think, just don't get the, the opportunity to have that experience. And that's what I try to do is to just create that experience of, of learning about somebody else's world and then understanding how you can apply what you know uh, in that world. Yeah, that seems like a very uh, productive approach. Obviously, it's been successful. Um, so in healthcare, there's a lot of data that needs to remain private. You know, there's HIPAA regulations and things like that. 
how do you handle data collection to enable these technologies? Then how do you deal with the, the privacy aspects that come along with that? Um, so you're right that anything you do in healthcare is highly encumbered with uh, regulation to uh, manage privacy and security. Um, anything that we do in the Malone Center, just like I think any other research institution, is governed by uh, the Institutional Review Board, the IRB, uh, where we essentially have to first describe what we're going to do, what data we're going to collect, uh, why we want to collect that data, what the science outcome is. Uh, and essentially, we have to prove to them that we put the right structures in place to first collect data that has the minimal amount of uh, personally identifiable information associated with it. Uh, and to the extent that there is PII, uh, that we um, ensure that we are storing it in a, a secure manner. And by secure, what it really means, it's a, a system that is um, managed by the university. There's kind of clear uh, gates that uh, allow you access to it. Um, and kind of basically state-of-the-art security has to be uh, applied to it. Uh, you know, it's an interesting question, uh, you know, as we go forward in healthcare, if or when we will start to change our way of thinking about information in the healthcare world in the following sense, namely, uh, right now it is a, the assumption is that no one wants to allow you to use their information unless there is either explicit consent or one or two or three other criteria satisfied that, that make it possible for you to, to make use of healthcare information. But it's an interesting question if you actually shifted the value proposition and said, look, um, we would like to use your information to improve um, our ability to uh, administer healthcare. You know, forget about new drugs, therapeutics, all of that. Think about the things I said with the Malone Center, right? Like, you know, we just want to build tools that will make the healthcare system more efficient, which will make it uh, less expensive for people, will improve quality, will give you more um, time with a provider. If, if you put that value proposition in front of people, would they be willing by default to say, yes, I'm happy to share my information, um, knowing again, it's secure, we're obviously not gonna leak it or anything like that, but I want to do it because it's gonna advance the, the quality of the care I receive and the quality of care that everyone else receives. If we could flip over into a world where that were possible, um, the type of the, the the level of innovation that you would say I think would be remarkable, uh, because clearly now if you compare the progress, particularly in AI in non-healthcare related areas to uh, healthcare, you can see there's a, a pretty remarkable difference, and the difference really has to do uh, more than anything else with our ability to capture and uh, apply data in a meaningful way. So would that require like legal and regulatory changes to make that kind of data more available? No, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of this comes back to both uh, federal regulation as well as liability concerns. Uh, and uh, it is no question a pretty heavy lift to think about uh, how this would happen. And, and quite honestly, I think it would take 
something at the level of a national um, initiative to do that. Um, and, and obviously, even at, at, at the national level, you're still going to have to allow for uh, people who simply say, look, I don't want to share my data. Right. But I think it, the way I think of it is it's a little bit more like, um, you know, kind of oddly when we, we use Gmail where we use a lot of other online tools, they say, do you accept our terms and conditions for data privacy? And inevitably we say yes, because we want to use it. And we give away private information all the time. And I, I, I wouldn't want to see healthcare go to something exactly like that, but something where the default is, yes, I would like to share my information, um, kind of driven by a set of standards and a, a set of um, ethical and legal structures, I think would, would be an enormous advance for the country. That's it for this episode of the podcast. Tune in for part two of my interview with Greg, where we discuss the use of robots in surgery and the future of telemedicine. Learn more about the work of the CCC at cra.org slash CCC. Till next time, peace.